Well, good morning. I'd like to invite you to open, open your copy of the Scriptures to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the focus of our time and our study this morning will be 18 through 25. So beginning in verse 18, this is God's Word to us this morning. Let us give our attention to it. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, And unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious and heavenly Father, this word is too marvelous for us. It is weighty. The redemptive work of of the triune God stands before us this morning. And so we ask, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, attend to Your Word. Instruct us. Guide us. Direct us. Encourage us in the faith. We pray this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Now this is a name that is plenty familiar to us all. And it is one that we hold all so dear. This name stirs up in us warm affections in our hearts as well as our minds. In particular, of God being with us, His covenant people. Now, if we are not careful, this name can become just seasonal. Kind of like candy canes and fruitcakes, neither of which I like. We dust this name of Jesus off for December and pack it away for the other 11 months. You see, the name Emmanuel has absorbed a lot of flavors a lot of different spices from our modern Christian season. Now make no mistake, some of them are fantastic. They really are great. But others, 
others of which vary greatly from the original recipe. And so it is good for us this Christmas season to ask what was and is the intent for this promised name. In fact, what we will find this morning will not dole the name Emmanuel, rather it will highlight for us the potency of this name to bring comfort, to help us in our loneliness, but even more so to bolster our faith in Christ in every time and in every season. Now, as we read Matthew's account of our Lord's birth, you will quickly notice that he has a different emphasis than that of Luke. Like Luke's account, Matthew makes it obvious that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus. And he makes clear that she was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Yet where where Luke focuses in on Mary, Matthew centers his account on Joseph. Particularly how Joseph was a righteous servant of our Lord. In fact, in verse 19, Matthew says that Joseph was just. Another way of saying that, he's a righteous man. Then he shows us how Joseph's piety was demonstrated, listen to me, by what he does. First, we see Joseph's piety in his plan to divorce Mary quietly. Now, Let's take a moment and remind ourselves of what betrothal was during this time. See, betrothal is very similar to the engagement process of of our own day when a couple wants to get married. They get engaged. There's the giving of a diamond ring in our culture to the bride-to-be. And so it's, it's similar to that in the time of Christ, but but it's actually a lot more serious than an engagement. In fact, it would have been considered the first stage of a marriage. There would have been a public pledge, one to another, in front of many witnesses. They're still not at this point fully married, but when they are betrothed, this is how it begins. The witnesses would have included the families of the couple as well as the elders of the community in which they lived. During this ceremony, there would have been a gift exchange. There would have been, and maybe some of you have heard, of a bride price. And there would have been a dowry that would have either been given or raised. And so let's be clear here. Betrothal during the time of Christ was a legal binding relationship And it could be only broken in two ways. Death or the process of a formal divorce. And so it's much stronger than our engagement process in that way. Now, we come back to Joseph wanting to divorce Mary quietly. Now with the betrothal being a legal act, if adultery was committed, it would have been required of him to enter into this process of divorce. 
And since Joseph knows that he is not the father, this is what he plans to do. Now at first, this would not seem like the right thing to do. I mean, why would he divorce? But it was actually very, very important at the time. You see, Jewish, Greek, and Roman law all demanded that a man divorce his wife if the man found out that the wife was guilty of adultery. Jewish law demanded that he charge his wife immediately upon discovery that she was not a virgin. Roman law actually treated a husband who failed to divorce his unfaithful wife as a panderer, exploiting his wife as a prostitute. So for Joseph to fail to divorce Mary would violate both law and custom. Yet, Joseph's desire is to do this quietly and thus showing his love and his compassion for Mary. For there there would have been great shame in being found out as an adulterer during the betrothal period. The community would have deliberately and intensely shamed Mary. Additionally, Joseph would have gained financially if he divorced her publicly. If he would have divorced her publicly as an adulteress, he could have gotten back the bride price as well. He would have gotten her dowry, both of which could have been a considerable amount of money. But in doing this quietly, Joseph might have lost both of these. So, Here we see Joseph's good character as before the angel even appeared to him. When it was only natural for Joseph to assume that Mary was unfaithful. But after the angel appears to Joseph and tells him God's word, Joseph further demonstrates, listen to me, his fidelity, his obedience to the Lord. For Joseph listens to the angel. He believes the angel and he obeys. Joseph goes ahead and he marries her as he is told. He does not have relations with her until she gives birth to Jesus. And then Joseph is the one that rightly names the boy Jesus. Therefore, or thereby making Jesus his son legally. In fact, Joseph's obedience to God would have cost him his own reputation. For Mary's pregnancy would have obviously shown that conception took place before marriage. Thus, Joseph would have been shamed for being unfaithful as well. Another uniqueness of Matthew's account compared to Luke's can be found in verse 22. Note it with me. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Here we see Matthew says that all of this took place to fulfill one Old Testament passage in particular. Note what he says in verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. These events with Joseph 
and Mary and the birth of a son fulfills the text of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. So this son born to Mary will be called Emmanuel, which is a name, or we could say it this way, a title that reveals the significance of this child. This child then will demonstrate that God is with His people. Of course, for us this morning, we have to ask this question. How? How will this child show that God is with His people? Let me ask it another way. In what way does this boy demonstrate that God is with us, His church? Well, the first place to look to answer these questions is Isaiah. What was the significance of Emmanuel's birth in Isaiah's time? Well, the king of Judah at that time was Ahaz, and Ahaz and Judah, well, they were in a lot of trouble. The northern kingdom of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel, yes, I said that correctly and you read it, the northern kingdom of Israel have joined forces. And they're coming down ready to conquer and destroy Judah. The people of Judah, they were terrified. They shook like trees, the text says, before the wind. In fact, from the city walls, they could see the enemy coming up against them. Essentially, a great war machine was pounding on Jerusalem's door. Enemies surrounded Judah from every side. And the guy sitting on the throne, well, he doesn't really instill much confidence, at least not from a covenantal point of view. You see, Ahaz was not a godly descendant of David. Rather, he had a propensity for idolatry. Yet, he was still from the line of David and an heir to the great promises of God to David. Ahaz falls short in so many ways, but he's still the quarterback of the home team. You have to root for him, especially when you consider your opponents. I will not pick on the Dallas Cowboys right now. The, the primary battle plan of these two northern kings, listen to me, was to conquer Judah and in order to put on the throne the son of Tabeel. King Rezin and King Pekah intended on installing a puppet king that is loyal to them. Brothers and sisters, this would have been a crisis of kingship. Pekah and Rezin don't want to just slit Ahaz's throat. They desire to annihilate the dynasty of David. Well, in this situation... The Lord comes to Ahaz by way of the prophet Isaiah, and he has, he has an offer, and a very generous offer at that. If you want to go there, you can. Isaiah chapter 7, in verse 10, the Lord says to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, a sign from the Lord is a guarantee that a promise will come to pass. 
A sign could be a miracle. And I just want to, I want to remind you of the promise that God made with David. That there would be his kingship established forever. So the line of David is on the line here. The Lord's token of what he says here is a promise that what he said to David will come true. So think of a sign as a booster shot for your faith. This kind is a kind and generous offer from the Lord. And as we just read, the Lord gives Ahaz essentially a blank check. Ahaz, name it. You name the sign. It could be the most miraculous sign imaginable. As the Lord says, it could be as deep as Sheol. It could be as lofty as heaven. The greatest miracle ever done between Sheol and the celestial realm is what God offers to Ahaz. Ahaz, if you can think of it, the Lord will do it. What a compassionate, merciful, and amazing offer. No no other offer in the entire Old Testament matches this one. And yet Ahaz turns it down. No thanks. I'm good. In fact, he turns it down with an air of piety. I I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, this not testing the Lord refers to the law we know in Deuteronomy chapter 6 that says to not to put the Lord your God to the test. Now, the veneer of Ahaz's piety is very thin. It's paper thin. Listen. When the Lord offers you a sign, you're not testing the Lord. You see, the Lord offered a sign. He offered a sign to assist Ahaz in his faith. It was presented as medicine for his weak faith. And what does it mean when you reject the doctor's medicine? It means that you don't think you need it. I'm not sick. No medicine required. Ahaz's refusal states his faith has no need for a sign. It reveals that he has no need for faith. Now Ahaz's refusal here assumes an event that is not mentioned here in our text in Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah responds to Ahaz with a rebuke. Let's do that first in in 7.13. And he said, Hear then, O house of David... Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? To weary God is to tire him out with sin. So what is the sin that wearied men and God? Well, when Ahaz learned that Judah was going to be attacked, he went and he hired another country. He hired Assyria for protection. We don't have time to go there, but 2 Kings 16, if you're taking notes, Ahaz says to the king of Assyria, he says, I'm your servant. I'm your son. And the point is this. Who needs the Lord when you can hire Assyria for protection? Brothers and sisters, you've got to get a hold of the gravity of this. The very 
existence of the line of Judah is in jeopardy and on the line, and Ahaz stiff arms God, and he aligns with Assyria. Ahaz entrusts the Davidic line to the enemy of God. And the Lord now shows us just how compassionate He is to sinful people. He will provide a sign in spite of Ahaz. Ahaz didn't pick one, so the Lord will choose one for Himself. And we know it and we've read it, but I'm going to do it again. 7.14 of Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. This promise of a child is a sign that God is with them to deliver them, to save them from their enemies. Now this child, there's not not just a sign of God's deliverance from Syria and northern Israel. Also the child is a sign that the Lord will deliver Judah from Assyria. For Assyria comes to conquer Israel and Syria only then to turn and shift its focus to Judah. The prophet likened Assyria in chapter 8 of Isaiah to rising waters. A river that overflows and keeps rising and keeps rising all the way up to the neck of Judah. That is, the capital city. But God promises that this mighty kingdom of rising water will not drown Judah. Judah will be delivered, but even beyond Assyria. This child is a sign that God will deliver His people even from exile. For in Isaiah chapter 9, The prophet begins speaking about this child being the one that would free them from exile. Like what we heard during the prayer meeting in our unison reading in Isaiah 9-6, what does the prophet say? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Yes, this Son will bring light to those exiled people. So this Emmanuel child of Isaiah shows Israel that God is with them to do what? To deliver them. To save them from their enemies. To bring peace. He will save them from northern Israel, from Syria, even Assyria, and beyond. He will bring them back from exile. So how does Jesus fulfill this Emmanuel promise? That's why we're here. How does Jesus fulfill this promise? Is Jesus going to help Israel be delivered from some other aggressor, some other empire? Is he a sign that Rome is about to fall? Well, the angel tells us directly in the text. The angel tells us how Jesus fulfills this sign. Look at it with me. Verse 21 of chapter 1. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and this, for he will save his people 
from their sin. This child's not going to save them from an invading army, from some nation that is after Judah's wealth and land. No, this son is going to deliver God's people from their own sin. He is born to save sinners. God is with His people to save them from their sin. Think about the significance of this with me. Those Israelites standing on the walls of Jerusalem looked out to see this formidable foe. The northern Israelites in Syria came with sword and spear, and they are hungry for blood. Then a few years later, an even mightier and crueler nation, the Assyrian army came up against Jerusalem. And they were slandering God, and they're ready to wipe out Judah. Yes, the people of Jerusalem beheld the faces of those that wanted to kill them. And yet the Lord delivered them. And He did so by slaughtering, listen to me, 185,000 Assyrian army soldiers. And He did it in one night. However, here in Matthew, the angel promised the defeat of an even greater foe. The child will deliver God's people from an even more hungrier and thirstier adversary. For how can the most powerful nation in the world begin to compare with our own sin? Is not that the power that shackles us all, that holds all mankind in bondage? Our sin shackles us to the passions of our flesh. It besieges us under the wrath of God as the sons of disobedience. So great is the power of sin that we cannot escape it on our own. Look at me. We don't even want to until we have been regenerated by our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we could offer thousands upon thousands of animal sacrifices, but the blood of animals would never take away one sin. We could offer up to God rivers of oil and wine, but this would never unlock the dungeon of sin. We could deny ourselves every single common grace pleasure. We could memorize our Bibles and our confessions frontwards and backwards. We could live off bread and water alone, but the Bible tells us this. It is as a filthy rags, useless against sin's prison bars. Truly, the power of sin leaves us in the world without God and without God. Hope. Sin causes us to cry out with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7 that says this, So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 
The terror of Assyria is nothing in compared to the cunning horror of our own sin with its unbreakable chains. And yet, this is why Jesus was born. This is how God is with us in this child to deliver us, to save us from this wretched foe of sin. Beloved, Jesus came to save you from your sin. Of course, as we hear this truth way too often, what is our tendency? Our tendency when we hear this is to say several different things. One, some of us tend to reject the idea that we are included in this promise Yeah, yeah, Christ came to save sinners, but He would never save someone like me. We might might say, I'm too sinful. You don't know what I've done. He would never save me. We might say, I'm pretty good. I've seen those guys over at Heritage. I don't need a Savior. We might say, I'm too insignificant. He would never save a man, a woman, a child like me. But do not be deceived, beloved, for he did come to save you. Let me ask you something. It's okay to to answer this inside. I want you to think about this. Do you struggle with your faith at times? Well, Jesus came to save sinners just like those mentioned in the genealogy of our text this morning here in Matthew 1. Jesus came to save Abraham who believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. And yet he continued to lie to Pharaoh and to doubt God's promise. He came to save sinners like David, though being faithful. And as we know, being called a man after God's own heart. And yet David devised an elaborate scheme to cover up adultery, and he did so by committing mass murder to commit murder of one. Our Lord came to save sinners like Solomon, the wisest man in all history, and yet led astray by his love for many women, and as a result fell into idolatry. Our Lord came to save, yes, Sinners like Manasseh, the king of Judah who created altars to Baal, the king who sacrificed his own sons by fire, and he listened to mediums and to prophets who practiced sorcery rather than listening to the prophets of the Lord. Yes, Jesus came to save us from our sins, rich or poor, whether you are free or enslaved, if you're healthy or you're sick, whether you're male or female, young or old, sin puts us all in the same place. Hating God, feeling alone and without hope. And yet on that day, on that day when the virgin gave birth, hope was born. Yes, our Lord Jesus Christ is Emmanuel. He is God to deliver us from our sin, the greatest enemy that we face. 
But furthermore, I, I want you to note how the angel said Jesus would save the people from their sin. This son of Mary is not merely a sign of what God is going to do like the children Isaiah had. Rather, this son is the deliverer. He is the redeemer. He himself is going to save us. He's going to do what only God can do. You see, this child is the Lord. Remember the names of Isaiah 9? One more time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And it says this, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this child named Jesus is not merely a sign of what God is going to do. He is God in the flesh. And He's come to do it. In fact, if we were to do a flyover of Matthew, you would see that he declares this truth all throughout. Jesus is the light dawning on a people lost in darkness in chapter 4 of Matthew, quoting Isaiah 9. Jesus walks upon the water. He calms the stormy sea. He multiplies bread for thousands. He forgives sins. He teaches with authority. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He casts out demons. He binds the strong man, Satan. Brothers and sisters, he's greater than the temple. He's greater than Solomon. And he is the Lord of the Sabbath. Our Lord's countenance was transfigured with the glory of God. He alone knows the Father and he is known by the Father. Yes, Jesus is God who took on flesh, the true Emmanuel. And He came to be with His people, particularly for the purpose of our salvation. He looks upon us as His people who are helpless, sheep without a shepherd. And He has compassion. He says that He did not come to call the righteous, He came for sinners, you and I. He gently touches a contagious leper. He is the friend of gluttons, of drunkards, of tax collectors, of sinners. He feeds His people who are hungry and thirsty. He says where there are two or three gathered in His name, He is with them. Yes, He assures the church which He purchased with His own blood that He is with them to the end of the age. He says this to you and I. Come, come to Me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Dear friends and saints, Jesus is Emmanuel. This is why he was born of a virgin, having no place to lay his head. And He did it to come near to you, to save you from your sin. And this is why the angels sing glory to God in the highest, 
peace on earth among those whom he is pleased. So do you feel alone in your struggle against sin? Are you dizzy from the maze of sin? Are you weary from the weight of your iniquity? Do you experience the angst of the Apostle Paul when he says, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well then, listen. Listen to the good news of the incarnation of our God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. He's with you for your salvation. He is with us even now as we worship Him, gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. He's with you by the Holy Spirit, that spirit of comfort and peace, even until the end of the age. He is with you to proclaim to you forgiveness of sins and freedom in His salvation. He has drawn near to you to grant you freedom. Freedom from the bondage and siege of sin and of death. Therefore, trust. Trust in Christ alone for salvation. For He takes us from being dead in captivity and sin and without hope to being free. Free in Christ as sons of the Heavenly Father possessing this declaration of our most blessed hope. So yes, come to Emmanuel in faith and He will give you rest, everlasting rest, for truly He is with you as we are His people.